0: Today, 30 years ago, in 1993, Chris Harney was assassinated. His death gave rise to one of South Africa's greatest political questions. If he had survived, what impact would he have had on the ANC government? This week on PageCast, Lester Kivett interviews co-authors Beauregard Tromp and Janet Smith about their updated version of the best-selling book, Harney, A Life Too Short.
1: Welcome to the PageCast Podcast brought to you by Jonathan Ball, where today we have the pleasure of speaking with authors Birgad Trump and Janet Smith about the updated edition of the book Honey, A Life Too Short, a book first published in 2009. This year, we're commemorating the 30th anniversary of Chris Heine's death, a significant moment and a significant figure in South Africa's liberation movement and transition from apartheid to democracy. Tragically, of course, Krasani assassinated in 1993. The the authors have taken the opportunity to update the book with new insights, information that has come to light since that first edition was published. They're exploring the significance of Krasani's life and legacy in South African politics, including the impact he could have had if he had not been assassinated and of course with the recent developments in recent memory of Chris Haney's killer Janus Valus being released on parole that's adding another layer of complexity to the story of Chris Hani's life and death so without further ado let's dive into this important conversation good morning and good day Birgad Trump and Janet Smith how are you good morning great to be with you Lester
0: absolutely great thank you Thanks for having
1: us, Janet. I'll start with you. 14 years ago, Janet, uh, you, you two first published "Hani: A Life Too Short." Um, none of us can, of course, predict the future and whether we'll be around next week, let alone in 14 years. But 30 years after the killing of Chris Hani, South Africa is in a critical point in our democratic project. Is that why that you've decided at the 30th anniversary mark to to put out an updated? Version of this book?
0: You know, Lester, there there were a couple of reasons. The one is that, Buregard, and I, I suppose that this book had become quite, or it's become part of our own lives and our own trajectory. As writers, as journalists, as South Africans, and so you know these sorts of anniversaries and these sorts of moments matter to us also as people, and we were just not able to sort of let it go without remarking on it but you 're quite right I think the the moment is also absolutely pertinent, if not poignant, because next year we we have uh, thirty years of, of democracy. And we really do question the democratic project. We must not forget other events. We mustn't forget Patong in 1992. You know, a massacre that almost predicted the the sort of chaos and disorder that could erupt in South Africa over time. But yes, there were definitely the two reasons. Personal and then the political questions that still hang over us very heavily.
1: Birgad, I'll get to straight to maybe some of the personal points. Of this book, I'll go right. straight to the end of the updated book, the epilogue, which ends in a in what is quite firm commentary of the mess in which you write that South Africa finds itself in. You declare Luther, continue, long live Krasani, as, as two journalists, Piragod. You, you're unapologetic that this isn't just a, a history book; this is also a question on South Africa, particularly in the untimely absence of Krasani.
2: Absolutely. So, um, you know, that the epilogue allows us to have greater, maybe greater voice. Look, the book in itself is a narrative of Chris Hani. We hoped always that there would be more narratives. And as we can see with Justice Malala, there are more narratives and we're very happy for that. So it is a narrative, a commentary on the life of Chris Hani, And of course, in the epilogue, we speak to the, the crisis that we find ourselves in. It's a crisis that has been developing over many years. I would say decades. It's a crisis of corruption, a crisis of service delivery. Um, it's a crisis of our belief system, really. It's a crisis of politics in that it's a betrayal. So it's a betrayal maybe of not only Chris Haney, but an idea and an ideal that, um, many of us held true, whether you believed in the ANC or not. It's an idea an ideal that, that, that has been fostered. For generations, many people, because it's something that you grow up with in your, your various structures, whatever you call family or community, you grow up with that idea. And then and, and to see where we are now, almost 30 years after the advent of democracy, it truly is a crisis. So we do point this out you know, this abject failure of our democracy to fulfill the ideals of a population that had so much and still retained so much ambition. But we say, you know, that that, that it is a struggle which we cannot relent. We cannot stop and not continue with the struggle. The idea was always that there was supposed to be a a rolling revolution as such, that that, that we should constantly be grappling and fighting with the levers of power to attain that that, that true democracy, which so many of our people do not enjoy at this point in time.
1: Birgond, I I want to know from you, both uh, you and Janet reporting at the time or just after South Africa's transition from apartheid to democracy, sketch the scene of particularly working in a newsroom and befriending, getting to know, covering political figures as young, enthusiastic, idealistic journalists in a newsroom.
2: Okay, so, I mean, I started, when I started working in a newsroom was in the, um, well, it was in what, 97, I think. And so it was still, you know, that advent of democracy. Now, you must remember the way the media, the media reflected in part the system at the time, system being a white-led system. Yeah. So people looked around the newsrooms and they realized "Uh, we are not equipped to speak about and to the larger population, which is black South Africa. So when we step into this newsroom, myself as a black South African, we are in the minority. And then, um, you are being exposed, you're being sent as a junior to go and cover certain things, which you are no better equipped for, maybe, or maybe you are better equipped than people who've been doing this for 20, 30 years, because they, they don't necessarily have that experience of engaging with, uh, you know, in Nelson Mandela. I remember go being sent to Robben Island. Um, I remember it was, um, Ahmed Katrada who was taking, um, Jerry Adams. From Fein, from the Irish, um, Republican army. He was being taken on a tour. And I mean, I was so ignorant at the time, uh, as Cathy's talking about who was being imprisoned here and who was, who was held here. And, um, Jerry Adams made a reference to Bobby Sands in my ignorance. I turn around and I say, who's Bobby Sands? <laughs> and I mean, so many years later, what 20, 25 years later, I, I, I think to myself, geez, what an ignorant question. But I mean, look. Ignorant is one thing, stupidity is another. So there were a lot of things that, that we had to go and, and engage with that we hadn't been engaging with before, or people we hadn't been engaging with, ideas um, that we, we we weren't engaging with. But at the same time, the other thing that, that, that was important, what we did understand was our communities. We understood the communities we came from. We understood the kind of struggles that they grappled with, and reflecting that, was a critical part of kind of the the, the necessary burden that many um, young black journalists from that generation faced. We understood that we represented so much more than ourselves. So, yes, that that was a very important um, time for us.
0: Janet? Yeah, let's, I think one of the the great joys of my life has been working with birgord and and also having the opportunity then um you know over over many years to talk about other things not not only chris hani but uh, i would say we're about give or take a decade apart in age so I started working in in a newsroom at the end of the 80s, and um, covered the transition to you know uh, the release of uh, Nelson Mandela and the uh, unbanning of the ANC and so on as a very young reporter, and then also the first elections in 1994. Um, I also have memories, um, you know, of being a child in a South Africa where the Antichrist was a Chris Haney, was a Joe Slovo, and uh, I think you know the, these reflections were. Very very, very, very useful. What 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 God has just said now, in terms of the necessary burden, I think he's described that so beautifully. He brought his understanding of being a South African and then being a journalist and an historian, to our debates as writers. And so, um, collecting all of that memory, personal memory, and then what we had developed, uh, how we had developed and grown, as journalists and writers independently of each other, to this magnificent story of this man. I cannot describe the significance of that for for, for me. Uh, and also to say what has been very interesting is that over the last 13, 14 years since uh, our book appeared, uh, Lester, I can't think of anybody having refuted that ethical, that moral high ground which Hani occupied. And we know that, you know, Nelson Mandela and others, parts of their lives, parts of, uh, you know, the choices that they made, have been refuted. People have questioned decisions um, that were made within the ANC. Um, to which Mandela uh, was party, but I don't think we have heard that about Hani, and so that has been almost a relief, I think, for Bureau Garden myself, because yes, it's a hagiography. We didn't, uh, we we wrote about Hani as if he was a hero, and now in 2023, I believe we still think of him as a hero. There's some fascinating
1: literature on the analysis of that 1980s satanic panic Uh, the satanic panic in the 1980s was essentially just a a proxy for anti-communist sentiment just speak to me a little bit about your depiction unapologetically as chris harney as a as a hero figure but but just linger a little bit on chris harney as the satanic figure that mixes in and blurs mm-hmm. the lines between the 1980s satanic panic and anti-communist mm. scare, particularly in South Africa. Janet?
0: You know, when, when one tries to describe it to, especially my children are, are 10 and 16, and if I try to describe it to them, it feels almost hysterical. But yes, there was absolutely that belief. It was active, it was alive, that the antichrist should be killed, the Antichrist being the communist. And if the Antichrist was killed, we could save South Africa. And so by the time the late 80s had been reached, and it appeared as if the ANC was in fact gaining some ground internationally, and perhaps South Africa would in fact fall to this Antichrist. And that would have been, as I say, Slovo, uh, and Hani communists, not so much uh, Mandela, not so much Tumble. If we had even heard enough about tumble to really decide for ourselves and um, I, I think Birogaard will agree that you know when you when you read through the transcripts of the trial and you read especially through the transcripts of the um, petitions that Jan Balas and Darby Lewis made to the TRC seeking amnesty, they talk then about the Antichrist um, so to uh, Gay Darby Lewis who uh, to an extent George Bezos, the late great George Bezos thought was um, you know the mind behind killing of Chris Hani, they talk about the Antichrist, they describe the communist threat that was just dis- going to destroy South Africa. But as we know, the killing of Chris Hani did not stop you know the end of apartheid. But whether or not the killing of Chris Hani achieved the kind of peace, you know the the sort of free state which Hani envisaged, well that still moot.
1: Birga a popular genre these days, whether it be television or whether it be fiction, is the writing of alternative histories, counterfact narratives. What would the world look like if X happened or Y didn't happen? I I believe you don't actively seek to answer that in this particular book. It is the burning question in South Africa, but in the profile you've sketched of Krasani, you give a glimpse. Is That's South Africa's eternal question in your view. What would the world look like? What would our world look like if Krasani wasn't killed?
2: You know, Lester, I'm pragmatic. I think between myself and Janet, I'm probably, I would like to believe I'm the more pragmatic one. And so I often think of it as a moot point because this is where we're at and we cannot distract from our reality. And we must be careful of not trying to hanker after a past that could have been um, which then deflects from having to deal with the reality which we have now, because it, it, it would consume us with too much rage, as it does already. Nonetheless, we are instructed by what has gone before. So we have to consider the kind of, of world that Chris Hani envisaged. And not Chris Hani alone, because he would never want to stand alone. He always spoke of the collective. He tried to work towards the collective. He very seldom stood or tried to stand out as an individual. As a hero of the people on his own, he spoke about the collective continually. But at the same time, you know, one of the, the things which I quite enjoyed um, preparing for this 30th anniversary, um, speaking to some of the people who, and over the years, we've spoken to many more people who knew Hani and spoke about him. And one of the people we spoke to was um, the editor of the Sunday Times, Bisom Msoome, who was quite involved in local politics in rural KZN at the time when he was still a schoolboy. And it was really insightful for me to get his insights because and and the reason why that this speaks to your point is that he says, you know, they had people come to them to come and speak to them as Sasco members and the like, to come and speak to them about um, you know, this highly convoluted idea of the liberation movement. Whereas um and this included he mentioned by name like people like Jacob Zuma. And I mean, he was quite frank and he said, you know, they were quite boring. Um, even Mandela. It was quite boring, you know, prepared speeches. They would speak about, you know, the ideas, highly convoluted ideas. Hani had a sense of exactly what they were dealing with at the time. Now, you must remember that we had a liberation struggle, which was largely in exile. This is now, I'm not only talking about, I'm not talking about the UDF. I'm talking about the liberation movements uh, outside of the country. So many of them didn't have that kind of um, on the ground sense of what was happening in the country. Hani did. He made it a point to actually go and spend time with, with ordinary people, ordinary workers, students, street committees, etc. And he was all about mobilizing grassroots people and understanding the struggles of grassroots South Africans and especially black South Africans who were the, of course, the most degenerated at the time and continue to be. And, and that is, is, is one thing that, that, that sticks with me, you know, that um, disconnect between a political class and the working class. Who they say they represent many of them of course speak of of knowledge they 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 may come from a working class and of course we know many of the leaders of our liberation movements essentially come from a middle class and he came from a working class family, and that's what made him also stand out to a degree um he was a wholly unique but um, he constantly sought out his um, working class and grassroots roots in order to constantly be able to speak from a a authentic point of view so that um, the message would land and the message always did land and that thing speaks to his enduring popularity and the enduring popularity of his ideas.
1: Janet that then also then speaks to the difference then in the the dogma of ideology. Chris Arnie, of course a committed socialist communist school in Marxism but mm-hmm. as Bladen Zimandi Uh, is quoted in your book, Hani's definition of socialism was not about big words, but what you do for people who have nothing. It speaks to his grassroots common touch approach.
0: You know, I I think uh, this is an absolutely essential part of the Hani story and and a reason why uh, we wish that, you know, there there were multiple platforms um, on which... Uh, hani was um, you know, discussed and um, you know, kind of brought to life. Um, you know, there was there was a piece of theatre that was made uh, about five years ago, a beautiful piece of theatre um by um Leila Enriquez. Uh, which had a look at at honey from a youth perspective. That is what all of us would wish that you know his ideas could be part of school life, um, could be part of summits that that young people organise themselves. And this is not about that antichrist communist idea which which I grew up with. And uh, I, I think. When Bladen Zimande talks about that, he is talking about a man who was really full of love. And this is the same idea that Black consciousness espoused. Love, really, humanity, um, reaching out to each other, doing things for each other. And that is at the heart of Marxist ideas. It's very, very difficult for generations of us. And I would say, you know, I was born in 1967. I think by the time we were the end of the 70s, at the end of primary school, entering uh, high school, it was just part of our understanding that a Christian nationalist world was the one that we were entitled to. What Hani did was he brought ideas to South Africans who were not allowed to read them um, which said, you can be a Christian, you can have a nationalist viewpoint, but you don't have to combine the two into a supremacy and into a an authoritarianism that uh, allows us to destroy each other. And so the socialism that he was describing wasn't about one race group destroying another. It wasn't about one religion destroying another. It was about all of us finding what we have in common to work towards a goal where we could share in the spoils of the country. Um, that said, I think... We have to understand that Hani was an ideological being. He was an ideological figure. And uh, if he had had his way, we would have had a socialist state today, which would have meant that people you know, the the working class owned the means of production, that there was a life for everybody that was equal. So there would have been a moral equity too. It's very difficult for us to even imagine that. And Lester, when you talk about um, counterfactual narratives, I think what is very interesting is that even for Beauregard and I, you know, we become historians in this. We've created a kind of a linear Ordered view of Hani. Counterfactual narratives say, let's look at it in a rather more non-linear way. Let's look at the chaos that existed at that time. Let's see what we can draw from the past and relook the past to see what we can remember and reinterpret. We miss Hani today as a person, for sure. I think we miss that that value um that the man would have brought, but what are his ideas? How can we take those ideas forward? And so just to say when Buregaard and I were dividing up, you know, how do we do this new piece of, of our honey book? Um, who do we interview? I interviewed Julius Malema for this purpose to see what his generation and what new ideologues believe they can bring to to South Africa today. Through Hani's
1: ideas, this book is, of course, about his life. His his life is largely a story in South Africa. It's framed by his death, but this book is about his life. I, I realize he would have been eighty years old if alive today. Um, mm. he was exposed to the liberation movement for the ANC before the SACP was banned. His entire life, uh, dedicated to the movement, but but in that vein of what ifs, what if he was not recruited to Lovedale? at, at Labdae, what if he was instead of deployment he finishes his legal clerking is Hani's involvement in the liberation still a fait complete simply because of his deep Catholic root upbringing and the time of his upbringing whether it was a deployment to Lusaka or whether it would be through year at home was his involvement in politics a fait complete, Birgad
2: I don't think it is a fate accompli. I believe that we are all—all all of us—are a reflection of various influences which we, which occur to us by sometimes by happenstance. So no, I—I—I I, I think that it, it's important. Everybody who actually influenced him, who we engaged with, during his when he when he actually moved out of um, Sabalele, and he started engaging more with different ideas influenced um the man who we know today as as chris Hani, and and i mean we we see this in later life if you hear musings from people who spoke to him um from outside of this this uh outside of the tent of the south african liberation movements you constantly see this hankering from Hani for more more knowledge more ideas you know um you you, you hear from someone like paulo jordan you know paulo jordan will talk about um about him quoting the the greek classics and the like there's this thirst for knowledge the seemingly unquenchable thirst for knowledge but not only in a formal in, in an informal sense from constantly engaging with with just about anybody and everybody to help inform his, his thinking but also from from scholars um so he's constantly reaching out throughout his life to other people for more ideas um there's this truly i mean i can't say it better than an, an unquenchable thirst from the man for knowledge or ideas is constantly evolving as a human being and actively pursuing that uh, that evolution of self
1: Gosh, and that active evolution from someone who is militaristically inclined to someone who says i'm a peacemaker but i also want to fight to we need to keep on fighting but then changes well actually we do need to negotiate uh, a, a man who is ever involving janet the spirit of telling the story and the philosophy of of Krasani. He is the protagonist of his story. And when you have a protagonist of the story, you need uh, an antagonist. Not necessarily in complete opposition, but with a different view. Tabunbeki is raised and mentioned several times as the opposite of Chris This story seems almost so literary. They meet still as young men at Lovedale. Kaboombeki is... Chris Hani's mentor, but the relationship or lack of you know emotional relationship between Mbeki Jr. and senior is 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 well known. Mbeki is a pipe smoking, you know, international student. Hani is trained for war and fighting in the bush and camps. It's a it's a relationship that actually fascinates us for its
0: very literary qualities you're absolutely right and i you know d- just to just to say lester that uh, i'm sure Pierre god will agree with me that uh, so many people within the ANC and outside have said that in fact the leader of this country should have been governor Mbeki, and i think we we that remains largely unexplored for us as south africans because for some reason um that great man has been you know I don't know, largely forgotten, blurred away. Thabo Mbeki's mother too, Epainet Mbeki, just a brilliant, brilliant woman, hospitable, kind, all of those things. But certainly, I think the rivalry between um, Thabo Mbeki and and, and Chris Haney existed, perhaps ideologically, perhaps uh, in other ways. But I wonder when you talk about counterfactual narratives, whether we haven't, not sensationalized, it, but whether that hasn't come to the fore in far stronger a manner than it needed to um, largely because uh, we didn't understand ANC politics at the time when Mbeki and Kusani were vying you know to 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 be Nelson Mandela's sort of next in command and um, we know we've heard this now a million times from ANC people. Um, ANC, we we have our own way of doing things, and you know people just don't understand us. But this is quite normal for us to to kind of have these these internal debates and have factions. Yes, perhaps that 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 was real then mm-hmm. too, and and we don't quite um, you know we haven't quite come to terms with what that means. You're
1: listening to the PageCast podcast brought to you by Jonathan Bullby speaking to uh, authors Birgad Trump and Janet Smith about the updated edition of uh, uh, the book, Harney A Life Too Short, first uh, published in 2009. And this updated version con- commemorates the 30th anniversary of um, Chris Hani's uh, death. I-, I-, I want to dwell a little bit on memory again, Biergrad. Mm-hmm. In 1993, I was nine years old. To me, this sounds funny, but Chris Harney, to me, was killed on a Sunday. Why? Not Easter Saturday, on a Sunday. Because I remember the front page of the Sunday Times. That is how I associate, personally, with the death of of Chris Harney. What's what's your memory of that day, of that moment, of that time?
2: You know, I remember a kind of a a, a silence just in my head and in my neighborhood. I mean, you know, I I come from Bell on the Cape Flats, so... For for us in our neighbourhood, and I mean, look, the politics at the time. I remember that that the it's for us. It was PAC politics, yeah. and and so with the death of Chrisani, even though we we the apartheid government was very good at essentially largely blacking out any media which related to the liberation movements because of what was happening at Kodesa and stuff at the time and more and more of the narratives of who's who um, in our liberation movement. We we had a larger sense just among ordinary South Africans as to what this meant. I remember conversations in the time in our neighborhood being about um like it's on now, like we're going to war. Those are people who had access to guns. They were talking about that. That scared me. I remember being particularly scared. Um, you know, that that ordinary neighbors of mine who were not overtly political, but they understood this moment. The adults, the older people, um, you know, in our neighborhood, they, they understood that this is a moment that we are going to war now and that there will be, you got a sense that there was a chaos to come. That's what it felt like to 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 us. So yes, it was it was a moment of first great anger and then fear of for 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 ourselves and for our country and also just shock um, and horror. You know, seeing that man splayed, that that great man splayed there in his in his driveway in that way with um, those tendrils of blood running. It was a horrifying image to observe. In the general populace of South Africa, the only other people I'd seen killed before were gangsters. This was, and this was somebody we actually, we felt we knew and we, we actually cared about. So this was like, um, a member of your family who had now been laid out to waste
1: uh, Janet, the cyclical nature of the story 30 years later in the updated version includes an interview with Somosomi, now the editor of the Sunday Times and I remember that front page quite vividly what do you remember of that particular Easter weekend in 1993
0: you know, Lester, I have a, I have a slight, um, a slight touch of, a slight personal touch of, of Hani in that, um, my then husband, um, we were very young, we had a small daughter, um, she was only a year old, um, he had been in prison for MK he was a, he was an MK cater. and um, Hani was his commander, so I remember quite clearly, you know, hearing on the radio, uh, looking after you know my, my baby and my husband coming home and he was not one to cry but he cried he sobbed and we sobbed together um one of the reasons for this is that when he was on trial Chris Hani was you know uh, he was he was part of operation Vula and Chris Hani testified um on his behalf in court and um Chris Hani came to me as a very young person i was 22 years old and put his arms around me and said you know we 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 take care of of our own and we care about you and and we love your family. So on a very, very personal level, you know, I, I remember it around that, you know, and I remember that sense for, for these MK caters, some of whom then gathered in our house, just feeling devastated. I enjoyed
1: the, the parts of the book that tells the, the story of espionage and sneaking over the border and being in disguise. It seems and it reads to me that Chris Arnie enjoyed that part of what was decades in exile. He mm-hmm. enjoyed the education. He enjoyed the training. He enjoyed speaking at international platforms. He maybe even took a thrill of sneaking across the Botswana border into South Africa. What we know of is of that, what I take as, as a part of his life, which is struggle in the liberation sense, but is
0: also adventure. I know that, um, Bureau is, is really, you know, also the, 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 aspect of, of that aspect of, of Hani is really tremendous. I mean, when one thinks about, you know, the wanky campaign, um, Lester, honestly, you know, MK has a lot of, you know, uh, victorious elements to it. You know, any, any liberation movement, the army of a liberation movements, it will have its victorious elements. And, and, you know, of course, their, their dealings with the Cubans, um you know in in the frontline states and and how people held up i mean hani particularly amid bomb blasts um you know on his home on on the homes of people living close to him um you know in 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 some in in other southern african countries but really the wanky campaign where they went to war where hani and others led MK soldiers, you know, into war with the hope of going home. These are these are stories, mm. um, let's face it, of adventure, which were unparalleled um, at the time. And MK did not repeat that, for better or for worse, it didn't happen again. Um, they were not able to go to war at that, you know, at that level. But honey believed that they should do it. Whether they would make it or not wasn't even the point, but they should do it to to really galvanize the South African public to tell the people, we're coming, we're coming, we're here for you. Birgit, what then is that, as we speak
1: of evolution, a, a, a man who was initially distrusted the negotiative conversation between the ANC in exile and and the nationalist government saying no we still have to take the fight but then later evolving sensing the change in wind in a in a collective front to saying yes we we do also need to negotiate elaborate please
2: so I I don't think that I think Hani played a particular role. Um I know that some people at the time the simple politics of some newspaper columnists was the hawk and the dove, you know, that here's this um as you mentioned this ministerist militaristic person this um devout communist you know the Khafar um he was the epitome of it. So and and he he assumed that role. I think um Quite, uh, he was happy to assume that role. And I think for somebody like, um, Tambo, for instance, um, this was necessary to maintain this balance within the liberation movement. So I don't think it was necessarily a, a fact that, that he, um, had a change of heart or, or conscience. I, I think that he understood the necessity for, for both to be happening simultaneously to keep the pressure on the apartheid government which was, of course, reluctant to give up much, if any, of its power that it had. So he was, he was, uh, you you needed a Krasani. he needed to play the role. So, um, you know, whereas, like anybody else, a complex person with many, many facets to him, he was happy to go and don his military fatigues, to um, always be seen as such, and to, to maintain the pressure um, so that we could actually advance those talks which were happening at Cordessa and even before that to make sure that so, so that people could in the analysis, um, in terms of the negotiating parties, they, they could, they could see like, you know, that if necessary, we could have a return to this war that was taking place, albeit a, well, the, the, this, and, and it could be much more of a civil war. There had to be that threat constantly. To actually get people to to advance certain talks, so that they could say, "Well, we'd rather go and advance with um, Party A than have to deal with, with the the threat of this militar- militaristic action and the insecurity that comes with the liberation movement that is destabilizing the state."
1: You're right. Of over the course of his life in exile and at home, attempts of his life. I don't know how many near brushes or attempts on his life there were, but he was almost this this prescience. He became later more and more aware of his mortality. Um, We forget that this is a family man. This is uh, a man who who says that, um, and takes the burden of being involved in the struggle. He says that uh, people have given their lives for the struggle, and I should not rest, and... Uh, therefore, that plays a role on his on his family. Do you think, Janet, that the realization of his mortality is is almost, um, I, I guess, a a burden and a guilt that anyone who dedicates their life to the struggle, what burden that must be on his broader family, his spouse, his his children?
0: I think this is very real, Lester, and I'm sure that that uh, you know, uh, you and you and Beauregard are. Are you know in a kind of a different generation to to what I am, but you must have met um, the children of of MK activists or of of you know people who NC members who were in exile. Today they they're also struggling with um, I guess not having connected as well um, with their parents or with their grandparents as they would have hoped, and there are legacies that are that are quite agonizing for many people. In this case, it is. It is such a tough one because I think that that Hani tried by all means to always live with his family, with his wife, with his daughters. And so they were living under very dangerous circumstances. As I was was recalling, you know, when when they were living, um, you know, in Lesotho, in Botswana, um, you know, there, there were attacks, um, there were cross-border attacks by the SANDF and they were really, it was perilous, but he tried um, as much as possible to be with them. And that's why when we hear uh, Dengpoh Hani. Speaking today, some people find it humorous. Uh, you know, when when Janusz Walus got uh, parole, uh, she was furious. She was raging. She was rampaging. She was saying words we are not sort of allowed to hear. You know, said on TV in live interviews. But really, um, this has a lot to do with the fact that her husband was murdered in that way. And not long after that, just a few years after that, their daughter, um, who was a witness to all of this, um, died under reasonably mysterious circumstances. Not that she was killed, but, you know, did she die because she was just heartbroken? Did she die because she was having issues um, around, you know, just, just lifestyle choices? We don't know. But nonetheless... Um, she also lost her life, and so Dimpolhany and and you know um, their other two daughters live with that. You know when you again when you look at the TRC, the amnesty hearings, and <laughs> you catch uh, a free mic on Winnie Mandela and Dimpolhany sitting side by side, listening to Gay Darby Lewis, um, Janice Phalus, trying to to. Um, deliver themselves some redemption you know she looks at impohani looks at Winnie mandela and she says my god we're sitting here with lunatics and yeah we have to agree we have to agree lunatics are people who had absolutely no compunction to completely destroy as many lives as possible with their with their singular act
1: a very unfamiliar moment for me while reading it is is shedding a tear while reading a a nonfiction book, particularly how you describe the scene of his death and in relation to his daughter witnessing it. And and we I think we tend to forget of the the real familial cost of the struggle, the the toll on, on families and individuals. But this is not an investigation into the circumstances of Hani's death, although there are many theories that do persist. Would that just have been simply academic for you after a trial, after the TRC? Is the is the circumstance around his death important to this conversation, Beauregard? Is, the, is it the question that needs to be asked Krasani had security details since Lusaka days. And why on that particular day were there no security around Krasnani? Is this by coincidence, as you write? Or is this by, uh, by design? Do we need to know those answers? Or as you say earlier, we have to be pragmatic and, and deal and move on.
2: You know, we, we, I, I say we must be pragmatic, but at the same time, we must not forget. You know, that there is a plausible answer for why security detail isn't there that he had given them the, the weekend off. So, and, and I mean, it's a man who enjoyed his freedom, his freedom to engage with people at will and not have that security detail. It was a burden for him, um, seemingly. And so, um, he left himself vulnerable, of course, but you know, he left himself vulnerable for everyday engagements, interactions. His daughter says, Hey, there's this man coming to talk to you. He wanted to be vulnerable to that. And of course, I mean, the, the highest price you can pay for that is what happened to him, that he was assassinated in front of his daughter in that driveway in Dawn Park. So, um, yes, I, I think it's right to ask questions. I don't, I don't deny anybody that, right? Um, and of course, there were many conspiracy theories, some of which we explored, which we, we tried to get to the bottom of. I don't pretend to have that we did get to the bottom of it. For us, it was more important to to understand fully and as comprehensively as possible the narrative that surrounded this great man again, coming back to the question that you asked, I think we have to ask questions around his assassination, but i I wouldn't want I don't think it's useful to fixate solely on that, which is what we tried to do was to to delve more deeply into the life of this man. Um, and like so many people in our contemporary history, it is a a narrative which is largely oral. And so that was critical for us to to actually go and, and get those, collect those oral histories. Um, because many of these people, like you mentioned earlier, the man would have been 80, um, 81 now already. Yeah. And many of his contemporaries have passed. And that's what we found in the experience of putting together this book. So we could not fixate solely on, on the assassination itself, which of course is a great plot for, for um for a movie or for um um a, a pure investigative book. But the the focus really for us was on on um expanding on who exactly was Chris Haney, or to try and tell as much of the story of Chris Haney and why he resonates so much um, in our contemporary. Um, South Africa.
1: What has happened since you first published in um, 2009, within the last 14 years, uh, Clive Darby Lewis dying, also the release of uh, Janus Falus. Um, I would like to touch on finally on what could be seen as the more global implications of Krasani's death. Uh, Clive Darby-Lewis was a member of an international right-wing anti-communist body. Janusz Walisz today is a very visible symbol of the Polish extreme right. He's, he's, his face is brandished at uh, football games where these um, F- football ultra fans who express right-wing views, that's where uh, uh, his face is brandished um the The death of a liberation leader Chrissani in South Africa would have been watched by many abroad, and with the release of Janus Walus, that somehow resonates in what we're seeing not only in South Africa but around the world with a with a growing right wing Janet.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Lester. You know, it it takes a while to figure out the intentions of of a book you're writing. And I think uh, for Bureau Garden, it did take us a while to figure out what are we doing with this book? You know, is it a biography? Are we, you know, are we are we going to explore and, and investigate or, or have a look at at all of the different um, strands that come together around the assassination? So once we had decided on what this book was going to be, we were quite intentional around that. So what Birgad has just said, um, you know, holds absolutely true. But in terms of values, I think his... Um, you know, nefarious uh, uh, a character as he is um, in terms of, of, you know, what our book describes, that, I guess, support for him um, has grown along with white supremacy um, over the last uh, 15 years or so. And we know that white supremacy is growing. I mean, we see it in the United States, whether it's growing or whether it has just been able to, um, you know, to flourish again around the way that leadership is changing, the way that nationalism um, is expressed, can be explored more deeply by those who study this. But without a doubt, um, Valius is a hero for many, 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 Uh, Millions around the world who follow have a view that white is God's way. And that that is the ultimate pure, pure race. And that is what he believed. And that is what the Darby Lewises believed. And that is what they wanted. And um, that they chose to murder somebody who had never, in fact, expressed a particular view around the white race, had never, in fact, said that the white race was responsible for, you know, where South Africa found itself is still extraordinary to me. I'm still full of fury um, around the choice they made um, but yes Valus is that symbol and wherever he is today we don't know where he is Birgard and I have tried and we will continue to try to um, do an interview with him mm-hmm. if we can he yep. will one day be able to go home probably to Poland he will one day be free because his parole is not unending and uh, who knows you know who knows where he mm-hmm. finds himself he will be in his 70s he will still be able to live a life and be yeah be be validated.
2: If I can add briefly, just speaking about the, the rise of, of right wing nationalism in Europe. So yes, white supremacy is, is one of the things that, that, that comes into play. But in many of the countries in Europe, um, it's kind of a de facto thing. You know, most of the population are, are white Europeans. Um, but the, the, the right wing nationalism that we're seeing is something which we should be particularly scared. About, you know, in the Northern hemisphere, uh, specifically where we have these very n- uh, narrow nationalistic intentions and, and what it does. And, and I don't know if they even realize this. So many of them, it uh, completely disregards the history and the, the suffering of, of, of a country, of a group of people, of a continent, um, in terms of espousing their nationalistic rhetoric. Um, so it is hateful. It is ill-considered. But um, this is the direction that Europe has been marching towards even before the war in Ukraine. And Ukraine has reinforced that and kind of sped that up so that even your left-wing groups are increasingly moving towards a centrist and sometimes to a center-right position, just in terms of the politics. You have the, the symbols like, like Mianush um, Valush very ill considered, of course, but who was held up as, as a hero by some. And I would hope not all Polish people. I know, you know, that, that, that we must also be careful not to fall into the trap of, 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 of seeing, you know, countries as, as, um, you know, that, that this is indicative of countries as well. But unfortunately, we see that, that, that fear, which is driving people towards this, this very, Uh, narrow nationalistic right-wing ideas, and and that of course informs their politics.
1: So I'll, I'll wrap up this conversation by talking about the cyclical nature of history, the unresolved issues that you do mention in your book. Peace too easily, the rush to settlement and peace at all costs, but not necessarily the rush to justice. You mentioned Jerry Adams and Sinn Fein earlier, uh, Birraghod. We're still today the the ideals of Irish unity. is Still in the end, whether um, mm-hmm. the Good Friday Agreement is still valid, we we ask ourselves here whether our negotiated settlement has borne the fruits or bear the fruits of of justice for all. This is a conversation in the spirit and the the philosophy of. Chris Haney, is still relevant today, Birgad?
2: Chris Haney's assassination essentially hastened our, our march to democracy um, at a time when talks had essentially stalled. And so it actually forced the hand, yes. And yes, I know that many times in recent history, the agreement that was was entered into, and specifically the sunset clauses, have been heavily criticised. And I think it's rightfully so. Because it makes people look back at history and see what we had agreed to. But at the same time, we must also remember that, that um, there was never going to be a, a perfect solution. That ours is a, is a young democracy that, that is still evolving. In the context of Krasani, we, we ask how could we agree to a constitution which allows somebody who took so much or some people who took so much from us as a nation to walk free, no matter how many years in jail. But there are so many compromises one has to make. You know, I have been privileged to watch um, and and report on on peace processes in in Burundi, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, for instance, and watching those negotiations go back and forth. And again, imperfect solutions, you know. But I I think that that this is something we are still grappling with. and, And fortunately, we are able to grapple with that within our imperfect democracy. Janet?
0: You know, I think, I think Buregard will, I'm hoping that he'll smile as I'm saying this because this is something that, that we argued over, you know, quite a lot around, you know, whether, whether we are probably in the place where we should be as we go down these decades or whether we could be doing better. And I think. The best we can do, if you think of that in, in inverted commas, is probably where we are. And that is absolutely not good enough. And we think about where we should be, where we where we could be. And then that is very important. And so we have to return to those goals. And we have to we have to imagine that somewhere along the line, probably around the time that Beergaard and I were writing this book, things were going terribly terribly wrong inside the ANC and so we 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 do feel that that person who could then have said this is not what we intended this is not where we are headed that we, we we didn't have that person after Hani. and so counter narratives aside i think we we agree that probably he would have allowed the fruit, the, the the plans of the ANC that were being discussed in the 80s with you know members of, of South Africa's Africana aristocracy, et cetera, et cetera, that would have come to life. And something went very, very badly wrong, and it is not going to be rectified. And it's probably uh, too late. Bureau and I will we'll always enjoy these conversations with each other. <laughs> Sitting slightly slightly aghast, looking at each other, saying, you really believe that? And me saying, you really believe that, Birgad? But uh, this is all good. We're historians. We work together. We have to debate.
1: Janet Smith, Birgad Trump, really appreciate your time and your book. Thank you so much and go well.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love
1: hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com Until next time, keep reading and listening.